From Washington, Alt-Right Politics, America's most respected midweek news program. The sharpest minds, realest sources, the most mainstream positions. Introducing Richard Spencer, editor of Alt-Right.com. Hannibal Bateman, struggling intellectual. Don Camillo, anti-Gaullist, adventurer. And I'm your host, Greg Ritter. Issue 1, Roy Moore scores. Accusations have crept up that Republican Senate nominee Roy Moore dated and possibly diddled teenage girls when he was a dashing young lawyer in the 1980s. Roy Moore has flatly denied some allegations but equivocated on others. In Moore's words, If I did, I'm not going to dispute these things, but I don't remember anything like that. (laughs) Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has now officially thrown Moore under the bus, claiming that he believes the woman, and wants Moore to step aside. This brings into question whether the Republicans would seat Moore even if he did win. A recent Emerson College poll reveals that Moore still holds a commanding 10-point lead over challenger Doug Jones in a poll taken after the allegations were first levied in the Washington Post. Will Roy Moore back down or will he double down? I ask you, Richard. Well, the answer to that question is that Roy Moore will double down. I mean, I would be very shocked if he pulled out at this point because he he fought back immediately, uh, claiming that uh, Mitch McConnell is the one who who needs to step aside, not me. Uh, He does not seem to be willing to cuck on this issue. And, um, you know, I I will be honest— there is something uh, a, a bit creepy about someone in their 30s uh, doing what is alleged to be done. Uh, you know, that includes, you know, uh, uh, talking to 14-year-old girls in a sexual fashion, pressing their hands up against his underwear and so on. Um, but the fact is, I, I think there's also a big problem in this new culture of I believe you. And uh, yes, there is such a thing as uh, real sexual assault and and rape, and uh, that is traumatizing. That's uh, obviously a very bad thing for the uh, uh, for the woman for building a healthy society, etc. Uh, but this notion that we must simply believe all women and that they have this inherent authenticity when they make claims. Uh, the fact is, just like uh, there are people have false memories, uh, people have motivations for making false claims, uh, people s- simply seek the limelight, uh, people want to seek revenge, people, etc. Et uh, we should not always just simply believe claims. Um, the fact is, I, I think the the most likely case is that Roy Moore was in that you know kind of. Uh, transitional period in his life between being a a 20-something rake about town and being a a career man in his 30s and 40s. Um, And he was uh, dating young girls. Uh, There is a natural thing about older men dating younger women, uh, having a decade separating, maybe even more than that. Um, The fact is, that that can be a very good thing in the sense that if two young people start living together at age 20 
and or let's say 22, they're just out of college. They both have a tremendous amount of debt. Neither of them has a career to speak of. They're both interning somewhere with very low income. Uh, what you have is a recipe for unhappiness. The woman does not respect the man as a bread earner. Um, the man sees the woman not as something to be taken care of, but as a, a partner or colleague, um, which I think you know a wife should be to a certain degree, but but not to this degree. He sees he sees her as an as an equal as another man, effectively, who's also earning money for their household. Um, and there's just there's not that respect and aberration that should be at the heart of a healthy marriage. And yeah, so was, it is healthy for older men who have established themselves to date younger women. Modern, um, uh, yeah, it, certainly it's been pathologized for uh, yeah men of well late twenties, early thirties, late thirties to date uh, actual virgins of you know sort of normal uh, breeding age. Uh, Don, do you? Uh, what do you think on this uh, sort of rather? It's an interesting question to pose in the age of Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey and George Takai. But it's almost as if the whole the whole social sexual system is set up to make whites fail. Yeah, and and to be fair, I'm going to sound like a cuck. Everyone failed, not just whites. Obviously, we we care most about our own. But um, where are breeding patterns most successful? I know that pointing to. Putting the words Africa and success in the same sentence is actually <laughs> quite counterintuitive. Um, so I'm sinking my own argument before it even sets sail. But um, in essence, the family structure, if Africans were whites and had the agency that they have, the social structure is actually better. You have um, men and women marrying younger, which I would argue um, is probably for the best because the 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 woman's eggs and the man's sperm are at their at their peak potentiality. The older you wait, both men and women, um, I'm an equal opportunity offender. Uh, the older they get, the less potent they are, and the less potent they are, the higher the risk for genetic and uh, genetic malformations, deformations. Um, obviously, I mean people know this. This isn't bunk science, you know. But women having kids into their forties now because they're muck career women. Uh, that raises the possibility for autism and 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 trisomy and and Down syndrome. That that's well known. So the first thing I would say is, yeah, I think um, the the social model in these countries marry young, have plenty of kids, and that actually effectively not to libertarian post, but that is the welfare state before the welfare state. You you would have many kids, you would raise a loving family. The the family structure would be the uh, the, the basis of your civic life. Um, Several large families interacting, and uh, that would they would support you into your your old age. Um, so I do defend marrying young. I'm, again, I was joking when I said it's weird in the age of the the, the, the all of these rape allegations. So I'm not saying that you know women should be married. Well, we're and- misunderstanding this this issue because it's in the context of these disgusting freaks exactly. and perverts exactly. like Kevin Spacey and Harvey Weinstein, right. who, who are th- those are different kind of perverts, but. Right. But they're they're disgusting each in their in their, in their own way. With Weinstein, it was I mean again, if the allegations are true, I, I look yeah sure we can assume innocent until yeah. proven guilty right, right even for Harvey Weinstein. But if the allegations are true, what he was engaging in uh, was a sadistic power play exactly. and ritual humiliation. He he didn't go in say in his boxer shorts and say hi he. <laughs> 
He also wasn't <laughs> looking for a future wife. <laughs> Just out to Ross story, by the way. Anyway, he did. He he wasn't romancing a woman. His intent or, or, is, or, is you know, very important. Yeah, and, and give you know give you know. Oh, would you like a glass of wine? Oh, oh perhaps right. we could go for a stroll. Some rufinol. It's that. Rufinol. Yeah. So no. Uh, he he was sadistically humiliating them. He wanted them to watch him right. masturbate or take a shower. I his gross body. Kevin Spacey is 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 sadly an expression of a uh, a correlation between homosexuality and and pederasty, and that yeah, right. is a very unfortunate thing uh, that that homosexuals have to deal with, and I think have to can deal with it first by fessing up to this obvious fact. Absolutely. Um, but as anyway, Milo did uh, to a degree, yes. <laughs> But uh, but, but this is a different situation, and, and right. I'm not to say. Look, if if my daughter were you know were in a car with some 30 year old and he's trying to kiss her, and, and she's say 15 or or 16, right. no, of course I don't right. like that. Sure. Of, of course that's terrible, and you know get her out of there. Uh, but again, but I'd rather my daughter date a guy like yes. of that age again, than intent, some the, the, than is, some eighteen is year it, old is like it loser. absolutely immoral. I mean, first off, no. you know, in in terms of a, a woman, you know, being um, nubile, effectively being in, in her reproductive prime, uh, that be, she can have a healthy baby around the age of sixteen. Right. Now, I don't, for a lot of reasons, including legal ones, I, I don't think that's a great idea. But certainly, in from the age of eighteen into their roaring 20s, they are very... Uh, th- this is the time for them to have children. That is the okay. best time to have healthy kids. So is it terrible for an 18-year-old, let's say, to be dating a man who has a law degree, who is just starting out on his career, Vietnam and vet. so on? A yeah. Vietnam vet. Right. Is this really some shocking perversity? What, what is, what Absolutely is, not. What is terrible is for her to date some guy her own age who is... Just exactly. in, just interested in getting a pump and dump and having a, a series of girlfriends until he is that thirty year old and is serious, who's not in a position to support a woman, right? Who's who has no money, no income, and just actually just wants to go out and get some. And I'll point out uh, before we get to Don here that Aristotle married at thirty five to a woman who was, I believe, sixteen, uh, and he thought this was ideal because these are the ages at which men and women respectively achieve their intellectual peak. <laughs> now uh, that may sound like an insult to men, but it's actually no. I was going to say quite the, the opposite, around, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, no, I think the crux of both of your arguments, Richard and, and Greg, um, intent intent matters in, in, immensely. Uh, if the thirty year old in the car with the fifteen year old in Richard's example, or the young man of equivalent age in Greg's example, who's just looking for a pump and dump, if both of these guys are looking just for that, then they're equally. Uh, noxious. They're equally to be rejected. Um, if in both scenarii, um, they are scenariones. Seri- <laughs> there you go. I knew I was going to get nagged by the Latinist here. Um, just go with it. I'm, I'm the faux Latinist here. Um, in both of these scenarios, um, they, the intent is marriage and children, reproduction, stable family life. Then they're both to be lauded. Uh, an 18-year-old boy with a 16-year-old girl or a 30-year-old guy and a 15-year-old girl. Obviously, as Richard said before, for legal reasons, I, I'm not saying that I'm encouraging people listening to go out and do that because it depends on the, your jurisdiction. But in in the absolute, in the hypothetical, in the, the, the moral uh, examples that we're setting up to answer, yes, I think they're both very um, laudable 
Because again, the man has experience. The man is a protector, first and foremost, biologically. The man is a provider. And the woman, um, you know, again, um, is meant to not the equality, the faux equality of the left, nor the, the rank subjugation of Islam, but in the traditional, uh, culturally Christian European tradition, women and men are complementary. And so, you know, the, it's, it's both egalitarian and submissive. The woman is expected to submit, but not in some disgusting way that takes away her, her femininity and her humanity. You have an Odysseus and you have a Penelope. Thank you. A very yes. good example. Right. I think I'll cut myself short there because I think you get the point. Yes, um, actually, if I if if I could uh, talk about Roy Moore though for an for a moment, one of the interesting things I find about this though is what this situation actually says about the conservative movement today. Hmm. And you know, Roy Moore has always been a sort of bet noir of social liberals, um, even sort of establishment conservatives from the Bush administration. Um, You know, that was one of the things that was missed, actually, when he was being touted as this great exemplar of Bannonism. You know, Roy Moore has been around for a long time and has had a long track record. But we're seeing not just establishment conservatives, we're seeing sort of Beltway conservative so-called Christian cucks like Rod Dreher turn on him because... The, how will this make us look to uh, to everyone else when Roy Moore is actually the one out there trying to seize power for his ideas and really move move the country in a direction uh, towards his ideas? And I mean that in the mo- in the most realistic way. He is seizing power. He has a good chance of winning this race. But we see the conservative establishment saying not only uh, should he resign, but if he wins, they will vote to censure him. And then we see the sort of typical Beltway movement conservative cucks who are always saying, oh, but if only you know we had someone that stood firm on something like gay marriage or religious liberty, we'd be great. But here comes a man who is actually not cucking on that and is being hard hardcore on it. I mean, to be frank, Roy Moore is the ideal of what theoretically someone like rod dreyer would want in the public sphere Mm -hmm. but at the end of the day they want to throw him under the bus because the pull of being mainstream is uh, a lot greater than actually fighting the pervasive neoliberal culture that surrounds us yeah i I wanted to bring up also that i mean these uh accusations are reminiscent of those against uh trump in the months before uh last year's election uh, Trump weathered them, and uh, none of his accusers has managed to produce uh, evidence, uh, let alone any substantial case. It's all just gone away. So, uh, has uh, you know, with Roy Moore, do we? Is it possible that the that death by a thousand accusations has started to lose its effectiveness? Well, I, I think what ha- is happening is this general polarization of our society, and and that's a good thing to a degree. It's actually a a very bad thing to another degree. But uh, the levels of distrust among normie conservative types in the South and Midwest are off the charts. They are willing to disbelieve, I mean, perhaps to a fault, disbelieve the reporting of the Washington Post and New York Times uh, Just assume it, the opposite it, is true. Yeah, yeah it, I mean, exactly. I, I do that a lot. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's not a, a <laughs> the pure skepticism is not a bad starting point, I guess. But uh, that being said, I I don't. I mean, there there have been cases where 
the the New York Times and and the Washington Post establishment papers have have lied. They are they are wrong on facts. I, I think thinking that they're a bunch of liars is actually a misunderstanding of what the power of these organizations actually. The power of the organizations is the narrative. It is the embedded intrinsic ideology. It's not the facts, which they actually generally get right, um, with some glaring exceptions, obviously. Uh, but anyway, that's a digression. No, I, I think this this does demonstrate this polarization of society where people don't believe it. They want to double down. When the liberal media attacks someone, they they like them more. Uh, it become they it, it, you know this is what's happening with Roy Moore. I mean, we are in a very interesting situation. The other thing, anyone who is an establishment conservative is also just suspect. Paul Ryan was the Tea Party champion five years ago. Now he's always establishment conservative. We hate him. Um, the the Trumpian Republican base is bucking Mitch McConnell. They're bucking the mass media, etc. I mean, th- this is a very interesting situation. I didn't think we we're going to be here. As if any of our listeners remember, I certainly threw shade on Roy Moore as one of these rootin' tootin' kind of goofy conservative types that I, I, I don't think are, are particularly useful um, because I, I've seen all of this stuff before. Uh, but the fact is, if he can weather this, if Trump cannot cuck, I mean, Trump has not cucked at this point on Roy Moore. If Trump throws Roy Moore under the bus tomorrow morning, we're recording this on, on Monday evening, if, tr- if Trump throws him under the bus, that would be a major change. But I don't think he will. And so we, we're at an interesting point in terms of the fracturing of the Trumpian white base, yeah, the establishment mm-hmm. Republicans, the mass media, etc. You cetera. mentioned uh, the like conservative base and their distrust of the media uh, vis-a-vis sex accusations, well, and other things too. But you also have with the liberals uh, a similar distrust uh, with the case of uh, Julian Assange. Yeah. He, you know, of course, was accused of uh, raping two women in Sweden. And that's uh, why he's hanging out in the Ecuadorian embassy in, in London. And yet plenty of uh, sort of RT watchers have been willing to give him a pass despite these accusations. Sort of odd. Well, well also, the, the liberals are, are totally delusional in terms of the, the Russian conspiracy narrative. I mean, you, you have, you know, they're, they're rec- just today there was a revelation from uh, uh, Julia Yaffa of the Atlantic, uh, that's where she's landed now, uh, of how there were DMs on Twitter shared between uh, Donald Trump Jr. and uh, Julian Assange, and these were leaked. Uh, I mean, these are the typical type of direct messages that occur between political actors and journalists of all kinds. I I didn't see anything in there that was a smoking gun Mm -hmm. at all. And yet again, this is more proof that Vladimir Putin stole our election. So I, I think everyone is in this kind of uh, hyper. How would you describe it, Hannibal? Like, like, like it's a it's a sort of hyper real moment in yeah. which you know Jean Baudrillard's America turns out to be a very prescient uh, <laughs> prescient book, and we're each sort of going off, blasting off in our own sort of news area 
cocoons and feedback loops. And I say this actually not as uh, sort of one of these woke centrist liberals who's like, oh, look at how bad this is that, you know, Schlesinger's vital center is uh, being destroyed. But I actually think it presages a sort of larger breakup, which which we'll see in the media. And actually, this is telling uh, because there was another poll that came out as well as Roy Moore being 10 points ahead that showed that evangelicals in Alabama are doubling down on Roy Moore. Now it's something like they're more likely to vote for yeah, him. Yeah, the press is attacking yeah. him, he must be yeah. awesome. No, yeah. no, they, he they must they, be cool. Yeah, yeah they pulled on this. There, there was now like 40% of them that said, after they heard this news, we're more likely yeah. to back Roy I, Moore. I think we were always in a virtual reality. I mean, I remember, it was just a more unified nation when it was 88% white. and uh-huh. uh, We uh, had three networks, too. Three networks. I mean, when Walter Cronkite turned on the Vietnam War. He he was a barometer of public opinion, but but he also you know let, let's say legitimized it or even you know ossified it to a degree. It, it was it was just kind of like all right, this is now the public opinion on this conflict. I don't think anything like that could happen before. I don't think there's going to be another Walter Cronkite before no. in the sense of this centrist, you know, Schlesingerian uh, liberal no, to, who's to, for everyone. Now we have Oberman, we have Maddow, yeah, right. we have Steve Bannon, we have Donald Trump as the president. We I mean, have it, us. We have, yeah. we have but no, us. To, to actually borrow a phrase, instead of bowling alone, we're watching news alone as yeah. well. You know, we are, there's no, <laughs> you know, that joke from Putnam's book that, you know, there's none of these bowling leagues or civic engagements, but there's also just not the community of news watchers watching the yeah. same news, right. getting the same information, processing the same information, sharing it with their neighbors. They're, they're, they're all in their own feedback loop. And again, what this shows is that the future will be a lot more fragmented and it will be fragmented politically as well. This is just the first sort of lapse of the wave to come in because this sort of thing isn't something that can just exist out there in the ether forever. There will be consequences to it. And, um, you know, that's just the future we're going to live in. I have a comment much less about Roy Moore and much more about what Hannibal just said uh, about the radical center and and, and what uh, Richard also commented on. I think what's interesting beyond, you know, what we already know about people getting their sources of news increasingly from the internet and therefore cherry picking cherry picking news sources that that cater to their, you know, pre-existing suppositions and their biases. Beyond that even, I think what's interesting is the breakdown of something as volatile as a multicultural, multiracial, multilinguistic America um, could have been avoided in this hypothetical in which everything from the media to the government to public school systems um, had pandered to the existing majority WASP American, not elite, but just the majority, period, the majority. I think that there could have been, there was an argument to be made that if these people in the establishment, and we know who we're talking about, if these groups of people who have you know tribal interests all over the, uh, the the civic and public and private institutions that I mentioned earlier, if they were willing to go along with the charade, the charade that is America, and were willing to give white Americans um, uh, unspoken implicit supremacy, everyone could have gotten along. We could have had this, like, the, the America that we knew from the 80s to before 9-11 could have probably teetered on for another 20, 30 years. The reason why it's breaking up today is because the people in America with the most agency, i.e. 20 to 40-year-old white males with education, with good morals, with 
um, you know, gumption with, uh, you know, whatever, high agency, are being disenfranchised. And so now we're like, hey, guys, um, I don't know if I can say fuck on here, but, you know, just fuck yes, you guys. of course yeah. you can. F- fuck you. Seriously. <laughs> like, it's the bucking of the white male. That, that America could have continued if all of us were the Shabbos goys, the, the Zog um, wage cucks that they expected us to be. We could have kept bankrolling this multicultural experiment. And it would have, you know, because we're still 60 to 69 percent, it's somewhere in the 60s, 60 to 69 percent of the population, we could have probably coddled it along for another couple decades. And, you know, there's, not. A, there's actually an interesting uh, point about that. Richard and I were talking about this before the show, and this relates back to Roy Moore. We were remembering sort of the halcyon days of social conservatives uh, in parts of the Bush era where, you know, gay marriage was losing in record numbers, where Roy Moore was actually with his Ten Commandments and all that sort of thing. Uh, However, it's gotten to the point where, you know, it used to be these people, and I think a lot of younger millennials, especially people that became libertarians, thought, oh, the reason why the cultural mainstream does not like us is because of our parents' antiquated social conservative views and things like that. But today we're seeing that deconstructed down just back to whiteness. We're mm. seeing hatred based on whiteness alone. I, I, you're obviously right about that. I, I think Trump was a major part of this, and, and the, the Trump phenomenon uh, revealed exactly what you're just uh, referring to. Uh, the, the fact that he won the evangelicals to such an extent— um, the religious right emerged as a, how could you say, a recompense or, 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 or a... Really, a, we could trace it to Jimmy Carter, of all people. Who well, was, well, but I'm, I, it's a post-segregationist movement. It, it, it's almost a, a, a substitute for real racial identity. It's this kind of goofy cultural identity that is apparently universalistic, but we all know who's it, who is really it's about. It's about Southern white Christians and Midwestern Christians to a, to right, a lesser extent. Right, like the extent. fact that Southern Christians are segregated, self-segregated into white churches and black churches. Yeah, yeah. It confirms exactly. what you're saying. Well, actually, and, but, but, so that's what the religious right was. So it, it was a, a theology. It became a culture. And I think in a way now it's a people, it's a population where you can have Donald Trump as the thrice divorced or twice divorced, thrice married, uh, you know, cultural libertarian, you know, man about New York City, had lots of girls, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and yet he can be their leader just in the sense that he shows respect to them. Yeah. And he he seems to care about them. And so they again, they, they went from a theology to a culture to being a people. Yeah. And actually, um, not only that, you know, you we see we see it breaking apart at the seams. You know, uh, we were talking about Russell Moore as well, the other end of mm-hmm. evangelical Christianity earlier today, and Russell Moore sort of represents all of that, but deracinated. It represents evangelicalism without a people. It represents yeah. it as a globalized whole without any anything to go go into it. But the road from Russell Moore to Roy Moore is a long one. And a lot of people uh, are on the side of Roy Moore, I would have to yes. venture. We'll need to get to Roger Moore. Let's, uh, let's go to the exit question. So there's been a lot of these, uh, a lot of scandals lately uh, regarding uh, sex. Uh, you've had Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, George Takei, Richard Dreyfus, Steven Seagal, and uh, even George H.W. Bush has come in for an encore performance. Uh favorite or funniest 
uh, funniest incident or funniest, funniest like accusation? I think the accusations against George Herbert Walker Bush are just so ridiculous in the sense that, I mean, look, I'm even, everyone always says like, well, if I had a daughter, what would I think? Look, if I had a daughter and some like 90... You do have a daughter. 90-year-old... I'm I'm speaking hypothetically. (laughs) And a 90-year-old who's in a wheelchair grabbed her ass. But like a cool... Not just any 90-year-old. George H.W. Bush, a guy who like crashed in the Pacific multiple times during World War II and like swam (laughs) to a boat. And played first base for like the the national champion... Yale uh, team and, and <laughs> first base. Yeah, uh, <laughs> he's he's been getting a lot of first base. He never got. Yeah, um, head of the CIA. Cop to feel at second. Like, yeah, oh. head of the CIA. Yes, and he grabbed my daughter's ass. Who cares? Laugh it off. That that's it, this is just such a joke. I mean, I'm not even. I'm obviously not a fan of the Bush family. I'm. I mean, Herbert I they Walker, were your close personal friends. Her, yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, according to some morons. Uh, uh, I mean, Herbert Walker was obviously superior to W. Who's a? I mean, we don't even need to go there. But but Herbert Walker himself was as a deeply flawed man. Uh, but putting all of that aside, the idea that we would care about this—that this is some terrible thing that we need to worry about—is so absurd. It, it's just like that. He's just being an old man. No one gets hurt. It, it, it's just again we we've. We have gone. We have fallen so far. We, we've just, we're obsessed with this notion, and it's a very deeply liberal, liberal notion of, uh, of of consent, or or you could say like will. Where if a woman, right, girls if, don't if, have if, it, right. Well, <laughs> look. So if you grab, if you slap a girl in the ass, and you're some old man, and and you you know whatever, that's somehow like a holocaust because <laughs> she, she didn't ask <laughs> you to do that. Up. However. If some woman totally demeans and debases herself, like in some horrifying, you know, gangbang, porno, scatological insanity, but she agrees to it, like, oh, she's liberated and glorified. That's just amazing. Our way of thinking about these things is so perverted and insane. I like that you bring this up because you really have to think of women of of a people as a resource. Yeah, it has to be protected, and we do not want to demean them, like, yeah. like, like, like fundamentally. I mean, I, I don't, I, I think we, we can't actually go down that road of just like rabid misogyny and just hatred of women, is thinking all women are skanks and yeah, sluts. Like, you can only presuppose that. If that you, is, yeah, only they can do that with. That's rocks. not. Yeah. That, that's that's return of Kangs or whatever. That's not what the alt right and identitarianism is about. And you know it, it is about respecting women, but but also having a realistic for conception, what they're good at, yeah, and what they're useful. Also, for. I would I would say that you know we were. Do you remember listeners when we were talking about intent earlier and how important that is? When a man who's in his nineties, who can't even get it up anymore, who's in a wheelchair, does that, he is not looking to follow his clearly obscene ass grab with penetration. He physically can't. And I think that in the good old days, when when you know. Uh, Patri- you know, my patriarchy was actually a thing. You know, this would have gone this way. It would have happened. It would have been kind of lewd and obscene. I'm not defending it, even from a trad position. Older men should not grope younger women. But it would have gone like this: it happens. The girl blushes. 
she's kind of flattered because she's 16 or however old. Her her femininity is just blossoming. She's probably just had her first blood yeah. a few years before, whatever. And he's like, you know, okay, it's gross, but he's an old man. He's getting the last couple kicks he can get out of life, and that's it. No yeah, one exactly. No harm, no foul. Right. Yes, it's wrong, but okay. All right, we have to get out here, uh, Hannibal. Uh, funniest sexual ac- sexual accusation right. uh, in this latest series. Well, I, I think the the funniest and also the saddest thing that I heard was actually the Louis C.K. Uh, oh, you know, um, I sexual. About that one. You know, uh, so it, apparently he was pulling a Harvey Weinstein where he was masturbating in front of women, but allegedly he was also. Asking them to, but they were apparently too afraid to say no. And then he apologizes, and it's just like, <laughs> oh. did you guys catch? Did you guys I, catch I, the I, post? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Did well, you guys read it? Well, no, no, well, well, this is this is even no. It's so sorry sa- to make you do yeah. this, but did you guys read his post? It's but, hilarious. Yeah, it, but oh, it's, no, it's, it's so it's so sad in a way because it's, it's like it, you, it, you you go to achieve it, power, it, it, and then you're gonna you're gonna exercise it by being like. Watch me jack off, please. <laughs> like, what? Yes, uh, and then followed by please. No, no, but no. That's the thing. It's 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 pathetic. It, it's even more pathetic than the Weinstein thing. I didn't think that was possible, but it's just like the, this behavior is just sad. Right. I mean, yeah. Don, most hilarious, pitiful, disgusting. I mean, they're all just. I mean, Harvey is just gross. He's the quintessential gross. I mean, just yeah. look at him. Um, they're each gross in their own category. I mean, like George Takai, it's hilarious because you know Star Trek, whatever. But also, like he's gay, and it, it confirms. When will he be replaced with Christopher Plummer in all old episodes? <laughs> I know, right? Exactly. <laughs> with an Asian, an offensive Asian accent, Christopher Plummer. Um, no, I think that I mean, these just confirm the whole. Okay, you know what? I am going to pick just one because that's that's yeah. the, the 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 nature of this question. Kevin Spacey going full um, throwing sand in our eyes and expecting us not to see what's going on. Like, oh, oh I that, was drunk. Was oh, offensive. and I'm gay. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I don't defend gay people, but, like, that's ridiculous. Yeah, when he made out with his Secret Service agent in, in the show. Yeah, that I was, was like, this is when I stopped watching it. This actually. seemed completely, it was just out of nowhere. Yeah. I, I think that, that was also when the show went off the rails yeah. as well. Uh, it, it just, it. Because or was it, it more representative of real Washington? Well, it might actually, <laughs> yeah. it might actually have been more representative of real Washington, Woke. but, <laughs> but um, it, it definitely went off the rails yeah. in terms of the original British series, yeah. which which I love. Well, also, yeah, the yeah, Fran- Fran- Francis Urquhart in the original series. The closet. <laughs> All right, well, Francis Urquhart in the original series was this reactionary with a plan. Yes. Whereas Kevin Spacey's character was an asshole who just wanted to achieve power for nothing he, he was like a pervert pretending to be a lower middle class good old boy yeah uh, for no reason but, outside of personal power all yeah. right well this is all behind the pedal of content we can do a yes. we can do a whole segment on uh house of cards the original versus the new yeah right right be good call me daddy but uh the correct answer daddy! The, the correct answer of course is a uh, harvey weinstein potted plant you are 16 going on 17 baby it's time to think better beware be canny and careful baby you're on the brink you are 16 going on 17 fellows will fall in line Eager young lads and brewers and cats will offer you food and wine. Issue 2. Based Polls. Sunday, 60,000 people staged a hardcore nationalist rally in Warsaw. 
The rally marked the anniversary of Poland's reemergence as a nation after the First World War. It was a fantastic show of clean, healthy patriotism. Many on the right were well disposed to nations like Poland, who have a nationalistic culture, strong religiosity, relatively high birth rates, and who adhere to normal gender roles. Other former Eastern Bloc countries exhibit these trends, for example, Hungary, the Baltics, the former Yugoslav states, and the Ukraine. But base Poland isn't what it seems. While its people may be grounded in patriotism, its government is just as zogged as any other. What should our perspective be on nationalistic feeling in the former Eastern Bloc? Richard. Well, I I think we should be more ambivalent than we are about the based Poles and the Visegrad Bloc and this very interesting, uh, very inspiring in many ways, um, phenomenon of nationalism, ethno-nationalism in the former Soviet sphere and in in Central Europe and Eastern Europe in general. Um, I... I don't blame the polls themselves at all. I think they are behaving uh, in a completely natural and and certainly understandable manner. Uh, they are more naturally based than your average American, certainly than your average Western European. And that's great. But from an outside view, we need to be critical of this phenomenon. Uh, the fact is, I view uh, Polish nationalism, etc., as a kind of tolerable nationalism from this perspective of Washington and NATO. They are going to allow Hungarians to be Hungarian nationalists and Poles to be Polish nationalists to the extent that it never threatens the international order and and, and Washington's empire in particular. Uh, so is something like, does something like this have the potential to be truly civilizational shaking? I, I'm afraid not, um, un, unless it transforms into something bigger than it is. If it is simply about a nationalism for this one country while never qu- truly questioning the geopolitical order, they certainly question Islamic immigration, and that I, I tip my cap to them. Uh, but you know, there was a actually a photo that got tweeted around of a uh, of a, a Polish march with these nationalists. They were carrying a, a regal banner of Poland, and they had two other banners. One of them, which had a void sign over a Nazi swastika, the other had a void sign over a Soviet and, and effectively Russian hammer and sickle. Uh, and that's all great, but the fact is, it is very easy to dismiss and demean empires from yesteryear that literally no longer exist in this day. It would have actually been edgy if this person held up an anti-NATO flag or anything like that. But the fact is, they're not going to do that because they believe that they have been freed, but all they have really achieved is is that they are now the, the, the pawn of someone else's empire, and that is Washington's empire. I don't dispute that it is better than the, the the Soviet days uh, in many ways. I, I I agree with that. But to think that these countries are actually sovereign or that they could actually challenge the way of the world geopolitically is is just 
it's just simply ridiculous. But do we want them to be sovereign? I mean, not necessarily, I mean, it, but I don't think that the people I'm criticizing is are not the polls. And I'm not just saying, I, let me step back. I would criticize the government that prevented you and me from entering the country, or at least threatened to. They issue, as many know, I was scheduled to appear at an identitarian event that was going to accompany this amazing uh, Polish nationalist rally. And I was, I have been excited for that for months. Uh, and I wanted to meet new people, etc. Uh, we are, we are forming a kind of anti Washington conspiracy, you could say, in the sense that we're meeting other identitarians in Europe, we're seeing how much we have in common. And someone wanted to prevent this, whether that someone is in Washington, whether that someone's in Brussels, that's or a, Tel Aviv, or Tel Aviv, <laughs> we don't know. But the fact is, someone wanted to prevent that, and they, or or whether that someone someone is in Warsaw, I'm sure there are m- multiple someone's out there. They wanted to prevent that, and the government issued this statement claiming that you know, oh, we poles are the were the one of the first victims of Nazism, and we can't abide Richard Spencer, you know what, setting foot in our country. Country, what buying a, a hotel room, going out to some di- with some dinners with some Polish nationalists who invited me to speak, by the way, and basically taking part in a in a folk culture festival. Oh, heaven forbid! How could we do that? Being the first victim of, of Adolf Hitler or something. So I look, I am just very skeptical of this whole phenomenon, but I don't blame the people participating in that. Um, in that folk festival, I think that whole that march was amazing. All of those people have really great healthy instincts. I absolutely support them. Uh, I the the people I'm criticizing are Americans who have this vicarious sense of nationalism, and they we can't actually pursue real nationalism here. But oh, mabased poles are so amazing. Oh, mabased poles are going to lead Western civilization out of the morass. Morass, give me a break. They, they, they exist as a tolerable nationalism that NATO and Washington will look the other way, will uh, you know, effectively tolerate, because they know that when the rubber hits the road, Pol- Poland is a pawn of NATO. It's a pawn of Washington. They are never going to ultimately challenge that. I am not interested in saving Poland. I am interested in saving Europe and the white race and our collective civilization. So, like, again, I wish all of these people well. I wish that they could go even further with their understanding of their identity. And I want, and I want to be a part of it. I want to collaborate with them. But there just was a great to, to, for Americans to just look at this and think that this is some amazing edgy event is to miss. Yeah, it's entirely superficial. Uh, Don. So um, I'm going to first of all agree with everything Richard just said. I agree. It is uh, Polish nationalism is in and of itself very laudable. What the the actual polls on the ground did the other day, showing up en masse, sixty thousand of them in Warsaw, is a feat, and I salute them. Um, that being said, I also agree with the rest of his analysis. I think that it is uh, you know the, um, the useful idiots that Lenin described. You know, uh, unfortunately. We described in an earlier podcast, one or two or three back, uh, relatively recently, within the last two or three weeks, we discussed the situation in the Ukraine and the fact that NATO, and which NATO is a code word for Washington, primarily then Brussels, then perhaps even Tel Aviv, if you will, uh, NATO is weaponizing 
Ukrainian nationalism uh, like they did in 2008 with Georgian nationalism. And Polish nationalism is part and parcel of that that movement. Um, the Baltics are another example. Uh, we're, we're playing up Baltic differences and similarities and singularities in the face of the Russian um, uh, bear, the Russian beast. And so, yes, I think uh, Polish nationalism falls within that categorization. I think it's important... Um, in essence, I, I'd like to just two quick digressions. The first is historical. I'm going to Don Camillo post for one second. And the latter is to answer uh, Greg's initial question, which was, um, is it even useful? Can we use Polish nationalism? How does it fit into the current context? So the, the historical posting is, I think, um, the Slavic race, if you will, the Slavic ethnic subcategory under the white race came to this part of the world um, several thousand years ago, and the foundational myth of the Slavic peoples is that there were three brothers that uh, met in a central location and decided to go each their own way and found nations, much like, you know, in the biblical tradition, Isaac and Ishmael, the, the Jewish and, the, and, the, and the, Arab, uh, the Arab race. So in the Slavic foundational myth, one brother went uh, east and founded Russia, the other two went west, one founded Poland, the other founded... Uh, Bohemia or Czechia, whichever term you prefer to use. And um, from that day forth, you know, Slavs were very powerful people. They created empires, uh, in, uh, admirable in their, own right, in their own right. And the Poles are no exception. The Poles were the, the central ethnic group of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth that at its apogee reached you know, the borders of Estonia in, on the Baltic Sea and what is today Odessa on the Black Sea. And it went from the eastern edges of the Holy Roman Empire to the western edges of the Grand Duchy of Moscow. So it's a very impressive empire. The Poles have nothing to be ashamed of. They're a, they're a um, courageous, homogenous, uh, ethnically and historically and culturally relevant people. Um, what has happened since, however, is the root of their superiority-inferiority complex that they feel vis-a-vis the Americans, the Germans, the Russians, etc. When the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth that I described a moment ago collapsed under its own weight, the three major empires of Mittel Europa, uh, Central Europe, the Prussians in the north, the Austrians to their southwest, and the Russians to the east, carved them up. There were several partitions of Poland three if i'm if i'm not mistaken and in the three partitions of poland the nation of poland and again to to our listeners nation is a description of a stock of people not a not a boundary the nation of poland was divided uh and redistributed into prussian lands austrian lands and hungarian lands and that lasted from the middle of the 18th century until world war 1 which greg mentioned at the beginning of this uh, topic too and uh, here we are when the Poles reemerge out of, you know, basically uh, several hundred years of, of uh, secondary citizenship under Lutheran, Prussians, Catholic, um, Austrians, and Orthodox Russians. They have a, a sense of self. They have mythology and history to base themselves on as a state. So it is, it is rather legitimate. I, I won't uh, negate their legitimacy. But again, they were the the kernel of discord, the apple of discord that existed between the two rival states of Germany and Russia. And it led to the two world wars, which I won't talk you through because our listeners, I assume, if you're listening to this, you're smart enough to know these things already. Um, so that brings us to the current day, to, to the m- m- current year. Um, we've gone through the Cold War. Poland was a satellite state 
in the Warsaw Pact, which was the NATO of the Soviet Union, if you will. Um, 1989, the wall falls, the Berlin Wall falls. 1991, the Soviet Union breaks up. Poland is now in its own Republican, uh, again, Respospolita. They're independent. And now they see Germany as the inheritor of Nazi Germany and Russia as the inheritor of Soviet um, power as their dual enemies. That being said, they still recognize Russia as a, um, a bear with fangs. They're still a realistic, a credible threat, whereas they see Germany as, rightfully so, as the cucked younger brother of Washington. So they're much less afraid of turning west and and subsuming their sovereignty to NATO than they are to turning east. And so that brings us to the second question that Greg asked, is Polish nationalism uh, useful? Can Does it fit into our ethno-racial cultural consciousness? Um, are they part of our greater project? Um, the, the short answer is no, the long answer is yes. The short answer is no for the reasons that Richard pointed out earlier. Uh, if you look at it just at face value, they're ki- they kind of are the fly in the ointment. They're trying to be. They're, they're trying to use kosher nationalism to further NATO's um, ambitions in the east. They host a lot of uh, Patriot missile batteries and and Thad anti missile systems, which are clearly pointed against Russia. Um, the long answer, I'm willing to say yes, just because I feel like if the Governments of these countries, Viktor Orban's Hungary and Andrzej Duda's um, Poland and and the rest of them, if those governments were more responsive to their people's nationalistic tendencies, I feel like they would understand the last red pill, which is you are being controlled opposition for the true European Renaissance that your people actually want. Their people are based in the non-Kekistani meaning of the word. They are based. They are, like Greg mentioned, their high birth rates, their religiosity, their pride, their their visceral, open, explicit um, rejection of both Semitic groups that are subsuming Europe, um, the the... Jewish Semitic group from within and the and the Islamic Semitic group from without, and they're, they're woke to that. They get that. Not to neg the poles, but it's kind of a new phenomenon for them. Um, I don't know if I I would agree with that. Um, because I think that uh they were one of the most Jewish uh, provinces of the Third Reich at the time. Uh, no, I'm talking about earlier. I'm talking about the. Uh the Grand Duchy of, of uh, you know, Poland, Lithuania. Being woke to the two, the, yeah. the other, the other Semitic group, the the or the. Oh Ottoman, yeah, well they're clearly woke on the other. The Semitic Ottoman group. <laughs> was the Ottoman was always a threat. I mean, Jan Sobieski um, and all these guys were were, were uh, um, seminal. Least, I should say, I should put it this way: their their aristocracy was allowing to was willing to let in lots True. of Jews. True. Okay, for their I, own I uses. do agree with that. You were right. I mean, I yeah. I can't disagree with that. But I think the people are understand i mean even today the average poll not the government but the average poll in the street gets both of these semitic threats to the cultural integrity and territorial integrity of europe and so my long form answer was that yes we can eventually use these nationalisms but we have to get through to them and make them understand that the last red pill it isn't being it, part it, of nato it, it's being part of a greater european but is it really all self. that bad to uh, for to for an empire to use uh very nationalistic peoples 
uh, to defend the the it's outer not perimeter. Bad, I mean, that's, that's it's not our empire. Of, that's just uh, sort of normal. Like, you're right. right that's going if on. If we were defending history. NATO, I would agree with you, but we're not. Well, right. <laughs> However, yeah, no, that's gone on throughout history. Uh, there's there's two points uh, I want to add with, to that. Obviously, I agree with everything uh, everything that's been said. So Disagree, goddammit. <laughs> well, no, but I will add I will add to one of the points. Well, actually, the first point. This is sort of a disagreement, but one of the great signs I actually did see at that Polish march was one that said, "We want a white Europe in Europe yeah, to be white." That was actually uh, a great you know a great thing to see uh, you know amidst. You know this great this great symbol. We you saw the the old Celtic cross symbol with Europe should be white. That was that was great. But the other thing I will mention, uh, and this is again, I'm going to build off of Richard's counter signaling of Americans living vicariously through this Eastern European nationalism because it's been one of my bet noirs for a while. But look, the thing is, yes, the one of the great things about Eastern Europe is that it never experienced uh, neoliberal postmodernism or cultural Marxism. It experienced <laughs> sort of second-wave Marxism, I guess you could say. And uh, so it sort of skipped that role. But the thing is, we... It, in the, it what, experienced first-wave right. Marxism and not second-wave Well, wave I, I, I'm saying second-wave not in the sense of Marx and Engels, but in the... Right. right. Yeah, it, as opposed to third-wave. Right. It experienced yeah. second-wave <laughs> It experienced Leninism. A- economic yeah. Marxism, not right. cultural I'm, I'm Marxism. Sorry. Exactly. I, I was being, yeah. I was I was channeling what's that book Kowalski's you know yes, yeah, main, yeah. yeah but um anyway as I was saying but the thing is we uh we in the West have gone through a serious situation with neoliberalism with capital L liberalism that has been the death of our societies and to our detriments and it, we have to emerge out of the other side and the, and you know I there's a part of me that thinks you know in the East yes. They are a lot more base. They're they're you know they're healthier, better fam. Probably if you were to pick a place to live, you would rather Eastern Europe or even East Germany within Germany than West Germany. But nevertheless, we have to understand that you have to know how to get through uh, this liberal hegemony because if you haven't experienced it, it becomes very attractive. This, this sounds like uh, Jason Drujani's <laughs> argument on why Iran uh, will lead the white well, race because well, well, they've been through Islam. <laughs> well, to, well, to an extent, there is some... It's like you have to experience... Colonel truth to that. You have to experience and go through and fight these things in order to develop antibodies to yeah. them. And if, they're, if you haven't, they're very attractive. It's like, this is cheap stuff. Oh, the satellite TV is coming in. Oh, the great Western culture, the McDonald's. We, uh, you know, you have to you have to understand it to create antibodies. I don't know. The, the Weimar experience doesn't seem to have uh, prevented Germany from becoming the most degenerate country in Europe. Well, because, because right, that, 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 is, that is actually exactly my point. You know, you you only have a reaction if you go through. Well, they had the reaction, but since since the you know thirteen year twelve year reaction, it's been a, a long seventy years of Weimar like zombie life. Right, but that's again in part because it's under the hegemony of capital L um, liberalism, and you know I, I I have to think that if you're going to solve this problem, it has to come from outside of it, and then it has to come from through it rather than from something that hasn't experienced it. I totally agree. Do so you think because, I, I would also of, just because say of, this. because of our degeneracy, like we're going to emerge stronger? Yes, whatever doesn't kill us makes the us only stronger. way out is through. And 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 those yeah. who haven't fully experienced that, yeah. this trial uh, won't be able to overcome it. Yeah, I absolutely believe that. Uh, I I would say also just to, to return to Poland, any time the alt light gets excited about something. 
I I think we should be very skeptical of it. Now, now I don't want to use the alt light as a reverse moral compass. You know, if if the if the alt light likes to eat filet mignon, that means filet mignon must be evil or something. No, uh, but when the alt right get alt light, excuse me, gets really excited about Polish nationalism, you can bet that it is useless. And I and I mean that very right, seriously. We're not going to see a realignment of like European power politics centered on Warsaw. No, although to go back to the Lauren Southern, you know, issue, yeah. the fact that these these people can look at based Poles or based Austrians. I mean, Austrian nationalism has got to be the most like, baseless like form. Eastern like, Aust- part of the right, Austrian right. Austria is g- part of Germania. Or it is the seat of empire. Like, Austria as a nation-state and, like, oh, we're just protecting the nation. That is so stupid. Autistic Habsburg screeching. I don't even want to get into <laughs> it. No, he was well, I mean, Richard look, was defending look, the Habsburg. Well, was, I mean, I just heard they have the seat of empire. Couldn't, like, we have a nation-state of Bavaria and Austria and then Prussia and, like, then you get the Rhineland has their own thing? I, obviously, these are, these are well, all the Rhineland cultures, is French. Everyone but knows they're, that. But yeah, and, and but... <laughs> Like again, well, where, do you, the, the well, where do you draw the line, Goy? In the geopolitical because, situation, because, look, because the Dutch are also West Germanic speaking people, as are, and then you have the North the Germanic speaking peoples, the, the the Danes, the Swedes, all them. So the, the Dutch had we an just empire. have a pan European empire. The, the, yes, yeah, that's yeah. what I've been saying. Or a pan Germanic empire. Look, Germany is the natural leader of Europe. Germany is the oh, heart and soul. Germany is the heart and soul of European civilization. It, it is. Ouch! No, it, that's okay. It, it is right so, at the, it's right at the center of East and As West. Bo- you have Italian. No, it, it is a philosophical <laughs> wrong, people. Wrong. wrong. It's Italy. Wrong. <laughs> oh my or, God! Or, 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 He's been doxxed. You can't second. get away with that. Shit. Or France, which is a synthesis of Italy and Germany, because you have both Germanics and Latin. Uh, however, yeah, you're, yeah, your language is German and your food is Italian. Greg, the counter signal you saw at least. The Dutch actually were the seat of an empire, a an empire that actually had yeah, uh, a, a, yeah, neo Phoenicia. Yeah, right. No, not just Indonesia, but at their height, at their height, the Dutch actually did affect world politics, and they it did. was they not did. only they founded New York, it was something that mattered. But what Richard is getting at is that they're they're like it'd be like saying Luxembourg Luxembourgian nationalism. Matters as much yeah, yeah, as yeah. Dutch ma- it nationalism. Doesn't. It, which it doesn't. Right, exactly, right. it doesn't. What I'm and, getting and, at is that the Dutch and the Germans are the same people. You know, the word, yes, sure. the word Dutch in English actually means... Deutsch. Yeah, Deutsch used to yeah. mean, well, it used to well, mean... Well, it's coming no, from the same it, word as Deutsch. Ro- actually is the word. It used to yeah, mean all continental West Germanic yes, speakers exactly. were referred to as Dutch. Just right. like Pennsylvania Dutch or, and, or just German yes. speakers. Right, yeah. right, Since right. the 19th century, the emergence of Germany, we've started using the Latin German. I, I, would, even say, I would even say that the, the, uh, the validity of various con- uh, continental European nationalisms is rooted in what we just talked about. Mm. The, the possibility, the, the, uh, the uh, existence of empires kind of validated, uh, validated, I'm sorry, that's not a word, validated these various nationalisms. Why is Luxembourgish nationalism not a thing, whereas Dutch nationalism arguably, and you may disagree, is a thing? Luxembourgers understand themselves as part of either a German or French cultural sphere because they're on that fault line. They're not, an, they're not a thing in and of themselves. Uh, just like the Swiss are on a fault line. The Dutch, on the other hand, were able to muster enough 
uh, capital, both financial capital, but also cultural capital to be their own, to come into their own personhood. And so I think that's the difference. For example, you know, several Eastern European countries that are artificial post-Treaty of Versailles creations, I would not defend their right to an explicit nationalism because I would probably subsume them under the label of another, you know, Germanic or Slavic or whatever Magyar nationalism. Whereas in Western Europe, you have the states of the Atlantic coast that were able to create empire and they have civilizations that have their own codes, their own references, their own Art social systems. in the systems. case of du- the Dutch, actually. Right. And yeah. so I think that, like, for example, if you're a Frenchman or a Spaniard or an Englishman, each of those countries have a, a universe of references. They're, they're, they're microcosms in and of, them, of themselves. You could go all around the world without stopping into in countries that speak that language, that have the same references, that, that live under similar cultural mores. That's only a handful of European countries that have that kind of spread, that cultural legitimacy. Luxembourg, you know, I love them. I've been there a hundred times. They're not one of them. Exit question. Is Zog afraid that we might try to build an international pro-right political coalition? Yes. Uh, we, we were actually talking about this uh, just— now You alluded to it already. Just privately, and, and that's why I alluded to it uh, in the beginning— uh, I do think that they are quite afraid of that. And, and it, on, on, from one standpoint, we can say, what are they afraid of? I can pick up my Skype phone and talk to a poll, you know, whenever I want. I am in communication with Europeans quite literally on a daily basis. So why are they trying to prevent me from traveling to Poland? Uh, but the fact is, when... When, when people meet face to face, when they literally break bread, when they they get to know each other as people and and, and aren't just interviewing one another over Skype, uh, a, a real camaraderie can arise. And I do feel that uh, Zog, if we want to use this you know humorous phrase, does fear this a, a international boon. yeah, and an international conspiracy against them. Um, and the fact is that when we are linking up with them, when we're traveling, um, uh, you know, to other countries uh, to visit their their cultural festivals, uh, something like that could arise. And and so, yeah, I, I I do think that that is a real fear. I believe that the uh, the the for whoever the foreign minister or whatever who issued that statement against me entering the country. Uh, was probably pressured. He was pressured by liberals within his own country, and he was being PC, you could say. Uh, but I, I would not be surprised at all if he were not pressured by more serious players, whether they'd be in Washington, whether they'd be in Warsaw, perhaps whether they'd be in Tel Aviv, or perhaps uh, whether they'd be in Brussels. Although, I, in from my standpoint, Brussels is the least likely one. Brussels does not have a foreign policy, really, in the way that Washington and Tel Aviv do. Yeah, no, I mean, I would have to agree with everything Richard just said there. <clears throat> you know, the the real great fear amongst people is that we would unite, not just in our own countries, but internationally too. And so as, yeah, you'd have an almost an international counter government. Yeah, and not only as as Richard alluded to, you know, I've 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 met many Europeans as well that have been involved in our movement, and I, I, I talk to many, uh, but it is a different thing when you meet each other face to face and can have that, you know, sense of 
sense of uh, togetherness, sense yeah, of purpose. I thought Daniel Freeberg was a total fag until I started drinking with him. <laughs> you <laughs> thought Daniel Freeberg. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> he was a total pansy until I. But yeah, no, they they they, they 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 fear us. Uh, they fear us united, yeah. and I think they're going to do their damnedest to try to keep us from, you know, organizing mm-hmm. with our friends uh, across the pond. Uh, yeah, I, I, you mentioned the f- Polish foreign minister. Is it still the same Polish foreign minister whose wife is uh, Ann Applebaum of the Washington Post? So it won't, won't be too delicious. Oh wow! I did not put two and two together, but let's. It probably not. I think that. it's. I think wow. it's. It's been a different guy since then. Uh, yes, Don- Anne Applebaum is a famous writer. She wrote a book on the Gulag. I remember, like fifteen years ago, or even longer. Uh, but yes, she she is effectively a kind of liberal neocon, uh, certainly anti-Russian. Uh, you know, you know, kind of person, and the fact that she's you know, running in these circles. We'll tell you all you need to know, uh, along with Jack Posobiec and Mike Cernovich. Yes, talking I about would put the them base in the same polls. category. <laughs> that tells you all you need to know in terms of the revolutionary potential of these, this phenomenon. Uh, uh, international political conspiracy, Don Camillo. Yes. Uh, I know that this podcast sounds ridiculous with everyone so polite that we're agreeing with each other all the time, but uh, Richard and Hannibal brought up good points. I, I'm going to just say that... Uh, the whether you call it the NWO or Zog, yeah, they do fear um, a united white European. You know, whether whether we be segmented eth- ethnically or the or, OWO, or, other world order, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, I think, uh, yeah, the reptilian world order, of course. Um, look at the last few times. I'm only going to cite three out of the many times that European man has decided to come together and punch together against. Wait, how many times? I, I was just about to cite three times in which Rome. I'm 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 getting to it. Don't 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 neg me. I'm I'm uh, to, don't don't comment and cuck me. I'm about to get to it. When the, the the last time the Roman Empire brought together, you know, legions marching together in their caligae from men from Illyria, Britannia, Pannonia under one banner. The last time that happened, the Second Temple of Solomon was destroyed. Um, and then oh, I thought you were going to say Attila the Hun was defeated. I mean, sure, if you'd like, you know, the Battle of Catalonian Fields in uh, Western, Eastern France. Um, so the Roman Empire, the second is the Napoleonic Empire. People think of them as a purely French empire, as, as a rather jingoistic and chauvinistic Frenchman. I'll take credit for him, but to be fair, he had hundreds of thousands, and that's not an exaggeration, hundreds of thousands of European non-French troops that joined La Grande Armée. I would have volunteered. Thank you. I, I, I think everyone in this room would have. We, we, we podcast under his portrait. Yes. And the third time, of course, the most triggering to, uh, to Snowflakes is, yes, the, uh, the pinwheel of friendship. The, uh, <laughs> the great, the, in, in, in the, greater, the greater brotherhood that was the Wehrmacht and the SS, there were foreign legions of Frenchmen and Dutchmen and Spaniards and, you know, even a very, very small handful of Britons and Americans. You know, the, the George Washington Legion and the, and the St. George Legion. So whatever. What I'm trying to say is it is possible and it does scare the Don't hell out of the them. Don't forget the Sikhs. And right, the yeah, yeah, the, the Freies Arab. <laughs> and the Central Asian. The <laughs> Yeah, based Sikhs. All right, um, let, me, let me give you all a contentious question. This should be, you can wrap this up real quick. Uh, since we aren't allowed to meet each other in white countries, apparently. Uh, what cool third world country would you most like to travel to for a international 
white identitarian conference. Richard. MPI Tokyo. <laughs> Implicit. <laughs> Hannibal. <laughs> MPI Casablanca. Oh, cucked. Okay, you want MPI Marrakesh? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, the correct answer is MPI New Delhi. Ooh. Yeah, our Aryan. Yeah, we're gonna have uh, right. We're gonna have I've, el- I've el- actually, elephants and like. Actually, you know no, what? That go- sounds odd. <laughs> MPI Peace Gloria in Switzerland. If if we if, if Switzerland were truly a, a neutral country, in we could Pitspaloo? we could literally. <laughs> we said non-white, not. Neutral. I know, but it's a, it's a neutral country. But we could literally go to a Bond villain's lair. Okay. NPI, could, NPI Harlem. A, a country. <laughs> a country that was another Bond Villas layer, by the way. A country that literally doesn't Little have like enough agency was, or border control. We yeah. can do like NPI Afghanistan and Alexander the Great post. Like oh Bactria. <laughs> NPI Kabul. <laughs> NPI Singapore. Raffles Hotel next year. Yeah, I, I think that's Return of Kings. Uh, uh, you know, NPI uh, uh, Southeast Asia. Hey, Sing- <laughs> Singapore is very different than those other ones. True. Right, a lot of good ideas. We'll, uh, I don't know, let the listeners uh, put some other ones up in the comments. Pestis Negra. The plague has broken out in Madagascar. It has claimed upwards of 160 lives and around 2,000 have been infected. Ten nearby countries are on high alert. This plague is reminiscent of uh, 2014's Ebola epidemic, which uh, ravaged West Africa. Fun facts. Madagascar is the world's fourth largest island. It is home to an eclectic array of plant and animal life due to the fact that its landmass was mostly most recently connected with what is now india and not africa it was one of the last places on the earth to be settled probably sometime in the first few centuries a.d moreover it was not settled by africans but rather by polynesian migrants who sailed across the indian ocean richard will the black death finally live up to its name I, I'm not sure I should be commenting on this matter. Uh, I'm going to pass this off to people who actually have. This is the first time on a pundit show that someone has passed on a subject. Uh, I have something to add later on in the program. But for the time being, on the actual happenings of the reemergence of the Black Death. Uh, this might, be the, about, this I mean, might actually be the yes. end of like all civilization. I'll, I don't know if you saw the... Uh, What's that British tabloid? The Independent, The Guardian, whatever. One of them. The uh, Guardian. Yeah, the Guardian. (laughs) Deep Uh, neck. (laughs) Shots fired. They they asked, uh, you know, will the plague, uh, will this plague spread to uh, Europe and the U.S. and Britain? And it's like, well, yes, thanks to open borders, right? And uh, you know, will will it result? Will it mutate into a 
uh, incurable form and uh, kill all of us. And, you know, one can only hope. Okay, well, well, look, well, if we're going to go down this road, then I will just No, 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 wait, let's, 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 okay. Richard, let's go to Don well, first. Well, so as NPI's resident, what is my title? Expert in developing countries yes, or something like that? Yes. Uh, yeah, so Madagascar does have interesting animal life, and I include mm. the people in their animal life. Um, they are I have a lot in, to say about their animal life, actually. Not literally their animal life. Right, so the the, the inhabitants. No, 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 no. <laughs> the fauna. No, no, the no, zoological no, implications. Yeah, no, no, the things okay. I care about. Well, then I will I will hand the baton over to Hannibal as soon as I'm finished. It's going to be very brief. I uh, The most interesting uh, from for someone who does not uh, come from Africa or has been to Africa, the most interesting factoid is what Greg already underlined, which is that they are not... Africans per se, mostly. Uh, I mean, there were they, African now, migrations later, right? But, right. Today, yeah. they're they are heavily <laughs> colored by. I don't. I mean that euphemistically, but also literally colored by various the waves of uh, Bantus, successive waves. Isn't uh, yes, that where all the Jews went? <laughs> where all the Jews go? <laughs> when Mom asks you where the six billion Jews go, <laughs> um, that is where they were supposed to go, <laughs> and then someone at the UN dropped the ball. That or Uganda, that's another plan for our, for our autistes who care to understand uh, Richard's Hence reference. Hence the Idi Amin connection. Yeah, and there, the, uh, the British East African Protectorate, which included uh, the Uganda and the Kenya and all these British-pronounced uh, protectorates. All right, but why do we care about Madagascar? <laughs> so Madagascar is interesting because it is, in fact, the, the, the root, the, the, the substratum of the population is Austronesian, which is quite fascinating considering it's hundreds of miles nay thousands of miles closer to africa right. than it is remember to that hum- humanity came out of africa and started in kenya or somewhere S- ethiopia so zog scientists right right well whatever but they did manage to find an island that's what 200 miles off the coast <laughs> that, for yeah. hundreds of thousands of years right <laughs> well they would have had to understand like you know navigation and boat building and, and whatever or swimming so the, that's the first thing the same thing is the um uh, the Madag- the uh the Malgache in uh, in the French language or the Malagasy in the English language um, are a, uh, and I say this not because I'm some neo-colonialist, I mean objectively, a very I mean, you violent are. people, um, in so much so that it took hundreds of years for their indigenous monarchy, the Marina dynasty, M-E-R-I-N-A, um, to centralize such a small island under one state. Mm-hmm. At that point, the English started sending... Um, uh, Remember the second book of Flashman. <laughs> oh, yes, of course, Flashman. Yeah, Gordon, of course, yeah, the great... Uh, the person that we all LARP as here in this room. Um, yeah, the English tried sending Anglican missionaries, and they tried to convert the Queen, and the French uh, got worried that Madagascar would be another Fashoda incident. A uh, Fashoda incident uh, happened in uh, the Sudan, and so they quickly decided to jump the gun, did not open diplomatic relations with Madagascar, and invaded and colonized. Um, so Madagascar was French from the middle of the 1880s until 1960. Um, at which point they were invited to join uh, a, a French version of the Commonwealth, which they did rather unsuccessfully. Today, Madagascar is an island nation that is part of the African Union, centered in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, the AU, which contains all African countries except Western Sahara, which is by right Moroccan. Um, 
And so this island is, again, extremely violent. There are hundreds uh, or thousands of NGO workers from the United States, from Western Europe, from East, East Asia, who uh, work there in various capacities. And every couple weeks, you'll have stories of random killings, of cannibalism, of... It's a terrible, it's a terrible fucking place. Basically That's a my, continent yeah. full of Baltimoreans. Yes, exactly. They're, they're, chimp outs are their are there normal there. Uh, so now the Black Death, if you will, um, why is it important? Well, it couldn't happen to a better group of people, first of all. Um, <laughs> funny side story, I, I probably can't give blood in any country in the world because I was in West Africa when the 2014 Ebola thing happened. I was probably patient zero. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, the Black Death, I, I have nothing to add except I gave my historical tidbit. I figure maybe I should hand it off to Hannibal uh, well, for a... Yeah, well, you, well, you know, the, the thing is, I, I actually don't have much to add on the human situation here. However, the, uh, the, the flora and fauna of Madagascar has sort of fascinated me since I was a child. You know, I don't know if you guys... I'm going to bring up two examples This of is this. like Archer and alligators yeah, yes. or something. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I, I actually will bring up cave-dwelling crocodilians in a second. This but one the, time at Lax but Camp? The, uh, <laughs> but the first animal I'm going to bring up is actually a marvel of, uh, of, of history. Uh, it was actually a rediscovery, the, the coelacanth, which was this grand fish that we thought was extinct for millions of years. You know, recently we just saw this... Uh, shark in Portugal that we also thought was extinct for eighty millions of eighty million years be rediscovered, but the coelacanth was this uh, you know extinct fish that we thought was gone. We found fossils of them, and then it turns out the natives of Madagascar had been finding and eating these things for. God knows how long. Well, and then, less than 2,000 years because they haven't right, right. been but, on Madagascar. Well, you know, that's actually an interesting point to bring it back in because where would this animal be, you know, still be in existence that it w- wouldn't uh, be disturbed by human population? Madagascar is a prime They're candidate. so inept at fishing that fish that should be fossilized by now are still being fished. Right. Oh, yeah. Funny. But God, Japanese, I can't resist. Funny story. So, if you the know, Japanese or the Chinese were there, they would have fished the hell out of yeah, them already. You know, you know uh, the natives of Tanzania actually forgot how to fish and they you mean forgot German how to Tanganyika? Pro- yeah and they forgot how to produce fire <laughs> <laughs> like they had to like find it and preserve it they well, actually regressed so much like the aborigines in australia still knew how to produce fire but the tanzanians forgot and then they went extinct in the 19th century and nobody cared well to bring up my second animal this actually is getting really absurd but you know uh there actually is a uh this isn't a subspecies of crocodile on madagascar it's just the normal sort of nile crocodile that's over there but they've actually taken up dwelling in caves and living in the cave structure it's sort of an interesting new thing this is a cold-blooded animal so living in caves is a fascinating scientific discovery Hmm. but you know Again, all this science is happening all around this Black Death. I don't know what to make of that. I also don't know what to make of the fact that the crocodiles are finding greater shelter, it seems, than, uh, than the people themselves. Right. <laughs> well, look, let's, let's, uh, let's bring a, a couple of things into this. So uh, this is from uh, the Daily Mail. So a uh, picture of uh, some Madagascarans bury, yeah, burying one of their dead, uh, presumably from plague. And the caption reads, Officials in Madagascar have warned residents not to exhume bodies of dead loved ones and dance with them (laughs) because the bizarre ritual can cause outbreaks of plague. (laughs) Do do you think they twerk? Even from... (laughs) 
this is i mean this Please is just across the channel from horses. tanzania where they're literally their their minister of the interior warned against there's one night a year where they they shut down all overhead flights because that's when the witches come out and they fly on their broomsticks Wow. National policy, guys. Even from a radical traditionalist perspective, like <laughs> dancing with corpses. Uh, Evola would be I mean, definitely wow. on How board. How better to honor your ancient ancestors than, than to, to exhume to their bodies and dance and them. twerk on them? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, so, in terms of the Black Death, let me actually contribute something uh, somewhat original on this. Uh, I'm going to read from a book that I actually published a number of years ago called Survive the Economic Collapse by Piero San Giorgio. This is why I bought like 16 gallons of water the other day. Right. Because you read this book. Yes. In 1944, this is a a kind of preface, a little uh, bit from it. In 1944, in order to uh, furnish an emergency source of nourishment for American soldiers operating in the extreme North Pacific... 29 reindeer were introduced onto St. Matthew's Island in the Bering Sea by the U.S. Coast Guard. With no predators and abundant sources of food, the reindeer population exploded, reaching 1,350 in 1957, then 6,000 in the summer of 1963, the equivalent of 30% growth per year. Kind of sounds like the stock market. Six months later, the entire population was dead of hunger, except 42 females. The vegetation had been gravely and lastingly damaged. A study showed that this sudden collapse was due to the drop in foodstuffs available caused by the overpopulation of reindeer, as well as by the unusually harsh winter of 1963. By 1980, no reindeer survived. This is the quintessential boom and bust cycle or crash and bang where through a combination of euphoria or artificial stimulus some kind of market whether it's a market for reindeer or a market for tulips or a market for crappy suburban dwellings in the united states goes out of control and is overproduced to the point that when it has to be reduced there is so much economic destruction that Things actually, the market actually declines well below where it was before the boom. This you, happens with any market, including that for population. Do you mean to the suggest combination, that Africa can't support one billion people? I uh, am meaning to suggest that, yes. Daring. The combination of Africans, Western medicine, massive just flooding in of Western aid that is going to God knows what... Uh, this situation is untenable. It is going to have to bust in some very hard and very sad way at some point. Um, Biological Keynesianism, like the boom and, boom and, boom and bust cycle? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Not, not kind of Keynesianism. Yeah, yeah. In a way. Yeah, in a way. you could say. Um, I, I might for that bust, guys. I, I might associate it with another e- e- uh, economist, but... Um, yes, uh, it, this kind of thing is going to happen. And, you know, ov- obviously one of the reasons why uh, Europeans have major advantages uh, in the contemporary world is because we did urbanize at a, a sooner rate. We experienced all the blight of urbanism, the sewage running through the street and so on. Uh, and we had greater immunity to a whole host of things that people who are more... 
uh, rural, more in the, living in the steppes, spread out, living in North America, uh, were simply unable to cope with these diseases uh, to which we were immune. Uh, so anyway, there, there are a lot of different reasons to believe that the African continent, the, the, the entire African population is going to undergo some kind of terrible, very sad bust, maybe even within our lifetime, and maybe it's going to come about through this blast from the past, the Black Death. So I, I want to bring up, ears. I want to bring up um, the Ebola crisis. Uh, I remember back in, in 2014, it was sort of a strange time in my life, I, uh, I bought my first gun, I uh, started reading Occidental Observer, and I remember it was uh, the Ebola crisis, and like the Ebola crisis, you know, came and went, and it wasn't a big. It didn't turn out to be a big deal. But looking at the indicators from the time, it was perfectly rational to assume that this, you know, could be the end. Uh, for every person who was getting infected, it was like uh, it was two people or, or one point five people were getting infected off of that person at mm. one point. And so, if that were to con- if that trend were to continue, it would lead to like just a total mass epidemic and you know what could counteract that uh the, the treatment ability of you know foreign aid groups was not enough to to stabilize the situation and moreover you had the issue of uh, people traveling from west africa to western countries yeah. and the media kept downplaying it oh well no it's just it's just two guys like don't worry about it and like oh he only infected two other people like don't worry about it yeah uh and it oh it only takes like ten people to treat one person who has Ebola and oh uh, it, it was it was um, you know I, I I don't like to be alarmist but if you have a, a for every one person who's infected if one point one other people are infected that's an exponential function and if that continues yeah yeah total we're, so yeah we're and and the other thing too about about the Ebola crisis and I wonder if we're not going to see a replay of this. Was anybody who went to treat uh, Ebola victims, uh, you know, when they came back, it was, per, you know, the the authorities, I remember the uh, the, uh, the uh, New Jersey, for instance, mm. said, look, you have to be quarantined for two weeks. You have to sit in a, in a tent yeah, and play right. fucking mm. Xbox for two weeks. Sorry, uh, you might have Ebola, and we're just not going to risk you transmitting it to somebody right. else. Yeah, right, right. And yeah. that was... So outrageous to the neocon and neoliberal press that yeah. we would impose this sanction of two weeks of sitting in a in a tent. Uh, that it was it was oh the argument was oh well if you do this people aren't going to be willing to volunteer mm. to go to Africa to risk getting Ebola you because they have might that, have to spend two weeks at you home. You should have that quarantine imposed upon you, Ebola or no Ebola, if you've been in contact with an African period. Yeah, who are probably carrying something, right? But you know, if if I could, if I if I could sort of dig deeper here, though, at what this? Yeah, I mean, maybe what, what, it's just what, what, all my like logical autism yeah. that that it it didn't compute. No, but there, but there is a there is even a deeper meaning within all of that, you know. And I, it sort of just hit me uh, because uh, during uh, sort of during uh, Halloween, I was rewatching episodes of The Walking Dead of all things, you know, great zombie outbreak. But you know, within within the sort of mythology that we've constructed about neoliberalism and where we are today, about America today, there is not really an eschaton, so to speak. There's no apocalypse. 
But there is one you can say in pop culture, the sort of zombie right. phenomenon yeah, no, and I've things like this a lot. no, and things like that get at get at a real sort of hanging fear about civilizational collapse mm-hmm. and the collapse of systems, the collapse of our the inability of our system to deal with an exponential crisis of something yeah, like know, that. Even these, these Ex- ex- existential. You know, it's it's interesting. The uh, the James Bond films of late have gone away from world apocalyptic master of the universe type villains yeah. uh however it, it is it is interesting that these two kingsman films uh were really about that the first kingsman film great it, movie yeah which yeah a lot better than the sequel the, the first kingsman film was about overpopulation degeneracy basically everyone on earth attempting to live this american stupid lifestyle and destroying the planet. And the Kingsmen save us from someone who wants to offer a solution, uh, by the way, in the form of mass genocide. But the fact is, it, it got at some fear. E- even the second one was a, a kind of similar crisis, but it was about everyone being on drugs and effectively turning, literally turning into kind of zombies or... or or, or, or mindless automatons and, and, and so on. And I, I think these are getting at a, a kind of creeping, you know, dystopia or apocalypse that's, you know, right underneath the surface in the, in the popular cultural mind. That we know this can't last. Not even even the super movie, superhero movies. You know, Richard. Yeah, they you are. know, there's there's about destruction of the world. So think about how many of our movies today, even our pop culture, is about these post-apocalyptic moments. Yeah. Or about trying to survive in an era where the system has collapsed, and you know you have to restart. It's just it's out there every day. I can't claim to be. I can't claim to have seen either of the Kingsman movies, although they looked very uh, entertaining. Nor can I claim to be a fan of zombie movies because I feel like they are yet another Hollywood distraction from young white boys being woke against other zombie-like threats like Jews or blacks or Muslims. No, I mean, but, I've, I've, um, I openly have said to teenagers, like, look, yeah, we all know is, is there a zombie movie. apocalypse? Like, yeah, it's called Islam. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you're right. That's among quite literally what those movies are about. I, I'm not even a big fan of the zombie movies, but yeah. World War Z... If you had changed the script slightly, that could have been just a full-on alt-right, you know, white nationalist epic. There right. are images, and it's actually done with Israel, which makes it even more interesting. <laughs> more, even more alt-right. And it, well, well, it does in a way because it 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 it, it adds a whole nother layer of complexity. But right. the fact is, right, right. there's this quote white end quote. It's not white in my view, but a, a kind of white outpost in the Middle East that is hyper-nationalistic and so on. And you have these just hordes of third-worlders piling into human pyramids in order to get over the wall of Israel, effectively. I mean, it is it is an existential expression of what Donald Trump was getting at in terms of building a wall and so on. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I actually, I am one who would say, and I don't just say this because of, like, laziness or something, but I, I, I don't, I would never recommend that anyone just totally unplug from the system. I, I think you have to be aware of it. You have to go in. You, I mean, obviously, don't be a moron and just like spend your entire life watching movies. But like, go into the movie right. with a critical awareness 
and it will actually teach you something about consciousness as opposed to this kind of like faux trad thing about like, oh, let's go home and play with wooden spoons or, or whatever. Like, <laughs> well, you know, uh, you know, it's like, no, I think we actually should engage with, you know, the contemporary si- since you bring Well, we're never going to reach a larger sphere of people unless we can talk in the same sort of cultural touchstones that right. they do in a way. Since Richard brings up trads, I mean, that's what he describes is what real Catholics call being in the world and not of the world right it's it's basically meaning you have to be under you have to understand the cultural cues in order to better fight them uh but yeah so back to my original point you know five minutes ago about not being explicitly or even implicitly a fan of zombie movies movies i've never been on that uh on that train um i just wanted to comment about the ebola crisis which is what greg brought up originally um a lot of the countries there in that region need gibbs from Washington, from Paris, from uh, London, from their former colonial capitals. And so they volunteered their their capital cities and their larger urban centers to be, um, you know, hospital incubator test projects. And they, um, I know that the, the CDC, which is the, the, the United States' is, uh, you know, um, uh, bulwark against chemical disaster and, and, and uh, and a contagious disease. The Brits and the French have equivalent agencies. They all sent people. And if the Ebola crisis didn't go the way that Greg feared, which is, you know, um, exponential explosion, not just in the region of West Africa, but globally, it's largely, yet again, as with everything in the world, because white people went from France, from Britain, from the United States, white people went on location and solved the problem at the source. This is why Ebola... While it made for, you know, very good ratings for CNN and Fox and others during the couple weeks that it, that it uh, freaked out America, the truth of the matter is it was solved relatively easily. Right, and by, by averting by that crisis, people, we only compounded the magnitude of the next crisis. Exactly, exactly. It had the potential of, of emptying that, that uh, human breadbasket that is West Africa, but it wasn't because, again, we are, we whites are our own worst enemy. We send qualified young people with millions of dollars of equipment to make Africa great again. Yeah, and off of our like yeah. tax money. Our and, tax money yeah. and our and our human capital. Right, and also risking infecting us Life with and diseases yeah. when they yeah. come back. Which they did. And they uh, refuse. They don't have the, the sense of duty to just say, okay, fine, impound me for two weeks. Right, Because right. I might have this disease. Again, ra- you know, the racism the, the fucking, it's like had. The, like the, the nurse that came back to Texas was like, The frontry no. of these people. Yeah. Yeah. These these girls who go to Africa and then oh I should be immediately be able to go to a club and like make out with some random guy right I just came from Africa sleeping with black dudes I need to come back to Dallas Texas and do the same yeah yeah um I I have to say like back in like 2012 like the Nazi zombie uh, uh meme was just great it was so <laughs> to, to be able to like think about you know the world ending and just uh you know being the lone holdout survivor it was sort of uh something got me through uh the worst the darkest days of uh the alt-right <laughs> that actually is sort of the other other end of that mythology i was talking about earlier you know uh actually a lot of us in the alt-right actually have talked about sort of that zombie phenomenon uh before but the other end of it is there is this sort of um i don't know what would you call it survivalist fantasy where you're the lone man held up against the world where you know you you've moved you've moved to West Virginia or something and you're you know you're you're holding out 
against the world. Kind of paleo fans, right? But there, but there is something. It it, it is sort of a recurring theme, uh, you know, in culture. I I actually that that particular fantasy has never appealed to me. But the the one that has is actually the beginning of Camp of the Saints, where you have that sort of older man drinking his whiskey, reading his books, ready to take his final stand at his home, and just saying, "Just come at me. This is it." That has actually always appealed to me more than running to the hills. Um, but I, I think this is actually an opportunity for us to talk a little bit about the reverse of the zombie fantasy, which is the sort of soul survivor fantasy. And in fact, I think a lot of people at the alt-right get obsessed well, well, with think, this I think the zomb- to, a, to, a, to a bad extent somewhat. I think the zombie fantasy is actually very, a very good metaphor for the situation we're in. Uh, the, <laughs> the zombies are Muslims and people who are not woke. And the survivors are people who are awoke. And actually, oddly, it's sort of an inversion of the zombie fantasy because in, in our world, really people only move one direction. They move into our camp, not out of the, not into the other camp. People yeah. don't get red pill, get on red pilled. Right. Yeah. They, they get red pilled. In fact, I'd even say, I mean, this might not be a very all right thing to say. We would like to see the zombies be, you know, Muslims and blacks and whatever other group. I, I fear the brainless zombie of the unwoke white socialist liberal more than I do oh, anything else. Yeah. Because these people are the the uh, enablers of these other invaders. And because they have higher agency due to their genetics, they're not, they're not woke mentally, obviously, but because they are the pre-existing condition of being white makes them more agent as people, they are much more dangerous. Those zombies are the worst. They are the locusts that eat the, the, the harvest that our ancestors have prepared for. Literally brain eaters. Literally brain eaters. Yes, thank you, Hannibal. Yeah. All right, excellent question. Uh, this one's just for Don Camillo. Oh, shit. Uh, so we've been talking about the black death for this whole thing. Let's talk about the white death. Uh, who, which uh, Byzantine emperor was known as the white death of the Saracens? Oh, man, are you testing me, Satan? Um, the whitest of the Saracens. So obviously that would imply that it'd have to be after the 600s because Islam yes. wasn't around this until is, uh, after Hijra. The, the, the uh, 10th century. 10th century, so 900s. Was he one of the Illyrian, like the Serbians, or was he still a Greek? Was he a, a Comnenus, or was he a Paleologus? Uh, not a Paleologus. They were at, in the 12 and 1300s. So not a Comnenus either? Hmm. This wasn't Basil the Bulgar Slayer, right? His uh, successor was uh, John uh, Tsimiskes. <laughs> right, because yeah. that, that really clarifies it for me. <laughs> you haven't, you haven't read uh, John uh, Julius Norwich's uh, trilogy on Byzantium? I actually have not, no. I'm sorry. Ooh, it's a good one. I uh, will have to do that. I'm sorry. I'm going to... The correct answer is Nike Forest the second Focus. Oh, Nicephorus. Focus. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, the, the, the Foci, the Focuses, um, they continue... Their lineage continues to this day in France, or at least the people that claim their mantle. Yeah. Uh, after oh, the Fourth really? Crusade, uh, you know the Fourth Crusade where the Venetians uh, yeah. ferried the Stopping. Franks. No, no, no. We're, this is good. This is, this is behind the paywall stuff. <laughs> Guys, please. <laughs> where, how are we going to cut that? <laughs> I'll cut it. Right there, like just like that. <laughs> <laughs>